Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Chris Wolf. Chris is a veteran correspondent who spent only a few weeks in Afghanistan many years ago. But the results of that period is his latest book, Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. Chris, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Tell me about the book. I mean, this is back in the early 90s when Afghanistan was a very different place, but when we look at it now, it hasn't changed that much. Uh, yes, still very chaotic. Uh, it was a very different situation back then. The uh, Russians had just left. The communists, the uh, regime that they'd left behind was still in power. And the Islamic rebels, which were still the friends of the West, were trying to kick them out. And uh, I was uh, working for the BBC World Service at the time and uh, was at that point in my career where I could try the life of a foreign correspondent. And my uh, mate was working stationed in Kabul, so uh, I went to go visit him and uh, thinking we would enjoy the life of a correspondent, I, uh, I said, well, let's see if we can see more of the country than just the capital. And uh, I was rather mm. under the impression that we would fly from one safely held government controlled city to another. But instead, we hitched a ride with a humanitarian aid convoy and blundered right into the war. Right. Why Afghanistan? I, I understand your friend was there, but uh, to be a foreign correspondent, you don't have to go to Afghanistan. <laughs> well, it was, I was curious, for sure, um, and I thought I knew what I was doing. I had been a soldier, an infantry soldier in the British Territorial Army, sure. uh, so the reserves force, mm -hmm. um, so I thought I understood you know, weapons and technology and different kinds of threats, and uh, I was very well informed. I was one of those geeky kids who would read everything they could about foreign places, so I knew pretty much what was going on in Afghanistan very well, so yeah. I... Uh, thought I could manage the threats that we would face, but really all that uh, peacetime yeah. military training and reading mm -hmm. cannot prepare you for the real thing, as, as you probably well know. Yeah, it's a tough country. Tell me something. The Russians. I remember when I was in Afghanistan, I kind of half anticipated to come across you know, fear and loathing, the propaganda, everything that went along with the Cold War, and particularly with the uh, Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Do you think they were that bad? The Russians? Yeah. Um, well, let me tell you, I don't know if you ever drove up the Salang Tunnel at that time or uh, in the early 90s, how early in the 90s you were there. Yep. But um, I was there in 1991, which was approximately 12 years after the Soviets invaded. And the Salang Tunnel is this key pass through the Hindu Kush mountains. And the Mujahideen quite rightly understood that it was a key strategic value to the um, Soviets and their regime there, as all the supplies needed, fuel, food, ammunition, came from the Soviet Union, from the north, um, over the border, and then had to cross the Hindu Kush mountains to reach Kabul and the southern half of the country. So key strategic pass. The Mujahideen understood that and started attacking the supply convoys from the get-go. And so understanding Chairman Mao's maxim that the gorilla is a fish swimming in water, the Soviets just uh, decided to drain the river. They depopulated the entire valley right. by force. And it was a chilling... You've, you, we've all read the phrase laid waste in military history books, but to see it having taken place uh, for a hundred-mile stretch 
50 miles either side of this this key tunnel every village laid waste not even a goat or a dog or anything like that to be seen only soldiers trying to protect this key strategic pass so every one of those houses would have contained a tragedy a family displaced or person potentially people killed and uh, driven overseas a third of the population fled in terror uh, right. from the entire country and then on top of that you've got the secret police from 1978 the first communist coup rounding up and torturing and killing killing their suspected opponents by the tens of thousands mm -hmm. to the extent that they shocked uh, the had the secret police shocked even their KGB handlers for their cruelty and capriciousness so I'm, I'm not going to so pass guess, judgment. I'll the let your listeners yes. <laughs> make your own mind up from, from that. I think the answer is yes. Uh, what I was kind of referring to is that by the time I landed there eight years later, the country was desperately poor, famine. There wasn't much working in the country. The war was ongoing. Everybody was fatigued. But one of the few areas that was productive was uh, that road uh, from uh, Sarobi through to Jalalabad and onto the Khyber Pass where the Russians had done extensive work on irrigation and it was one of the <coughs> few areas where you could uh, get food from. And uh, well, it was, that's it, an interesting, yeah. interesting cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? Yeah. They, they, where they impose order, there can be some um, structural improvements, just like there were in, mm -hmm. during the US occupation, there was um, a lot of investment um, and um, positive construction of, of infrastructure, schools, um, irrigation, and so on and so forth. But where that clashes with the popular will, I guess, if that's the oh, way right. you want to characterize it, then, you know, it's, it's okay, great, we've got roads, but we've got the... Uh, it reminds me of the... Um, Monty Python yeah, I thought the you would say that. <laughs> life of Brian, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? Exactly, um, the roads. You know, you've got your roads and your aqueducts, but where's the freedom that, or at least the uh, freedom to practice their faith and follow their culture in the way that they understand it, mm. uh, you know, it's not, it's going to clash with that, you know, um, economic superficial uh, uh, overview. Sure. Now, in your travels... You uh, were guided by Abdullah Abdullah, who I did know quite well there for a period, and also you did meet Ahmed Shah Massoud, who, as a Tajik warlord, was often considered a moderate, I guess. He controlled the uh, northeast and uh, beyond the tunnel. How did you find them? And particularly, how did you find Massoud? Um, well, it's a, an interesting question. Looking back, I was talking with my um, companion, my mm. the correspondent who was stationed there, Chris Bowers, just uh, in the course of researching the book. And we were considering the possibility that we we're actually set up by the United Nations, which was a big player back in the early 90s, probably at the height of its diplomatic influence. And we know that they were trying to get an answer from Massoud for his um, for their for their peace plan, which would have uh, brought a peaceful transition, that was the hope, from the communist regime to a more multi-party system. And um, Massoud responded by saying, well, if you want an answer, you're going to have to come to me. And so they set up this very rare humanitarian aid convoy, and it was just a couple of trucks, so it wasn't a big one. So I was thinking, well, if the situation is so dire where this place, where these supplies are needed, why 
why are they uh, taking only a couple of trucks worth of material? But anyway, so <clears throat> in, as you may know, the Afghan customers, if you want to see the big man in town, you go to his area and present your compliments, let it be known that you're there and open to seeing him and maybe he'll see you, maybe he won't. Mm -hmm. And so we went into his um, into the lion's den, if you were, if he was the lion of the Panjshir, up in the north in a place called Talakan, mm -hmm. and basically we're just going about town doing regular business uh, of reporting on the, the town's social economic uh, conditions and such. And um, then word came down that Abdullah was here. He started guiding us around. Uh, he was in charge of the local reconstruction committee at the time and was showing us how well the city was run. You know, the Mujahideen were trying to make the case that they were fit to run a country. So they made a very good effort uh, to show us, at least, that they could do a good job of running this region. Um, and then it was through Abdullah that um, we made the connection and then ultimately uh, were taken up into the mountains to meet Masood at one of his um, Mujahideen rebel training bases in the Farqa Valley, right. the north side of the Hindu Kush. <clears throat> and that was how we saw him. How did you find him? I didn't mean how did you find him. Um, what sort of welcoming committee did he send out? Did you, was he gracious? Well, was he... Uh, obviously, he was, um, no, I mean, he, Abdullah, I didn't really realize at the time, was, in a sense, uh, Masood's right-hand man. I thought somehow there was a separation of military and political systems in the Mujahideen. I was kind of brought up on the Western model, so I didn't really understand how closely they were working together. Uh, so Abdullah was the man. He brought us to the camp at night, and uh, we just crashed in a, a barracks built into a cave. And... Obviously, Masood was public enemy number one at the time, so there was a constant danger of assassination and airstrike uh, not, uh, from the government, and then, of course, the danger of attack from his rivals in other Mujahideen groups. Uh, so he was, security was top-notch, and uh, basically they wouldn't tell us if he was going to be in the vicinity or not, and then suddenly they woke us up in the night and said, it's time, and Abdullah brought us into this other building and for... Uh, Masood's uh, grand entry, and uh, he came in, yes, a very imposing figure with a big Tajik, traditional Tajik blanket coat, which made his shoulders look huge, so he's much more impressive looking than he may have been without it, and of course that famous jaunty pakul cap on his head off at an angle to cover his uh, damaged ear, but still a very imposing presence, okay. he knew how to make a good impression, that's for sure. Of course, uh, Masood was aligned with uh, Bernardine Rabani, who was recognised by the UN as uh, president of Afghanistan throughout the 1990s. And once the Taliban came into power, they wanted to take that away and they wanted that UN recognition for themselves. They never got it. And in particular, with the events, obviously, that happened after 9-11, now they want it back again. Do you think, given the events of the last uh, six, seven months, that the Taliban should be given recognition as a legitimate head of state in Afghanistan? Well, that's a very tough question, uh, because the what's at stake, all the things that you mentioned uh, from the time that you were there, famine, disorder, they're all looming again. And the, does it behoove the Western international community to try and head that off with practical help to the people because the consequence of non-recognition could be 
that you cut off um, aid and support programs that are helping people. So on the one hand, it seems wrong to recognize a regime uh, that came to power by force of arms. On the other hand, failure could have severe humanitarian consequences. So maybe there's something in the middle where there can be a deal to work with the regime to prevent, in particular, another famine. And then, on the other hand, stop short of actual recognition. Uh, that, That seems to be like a practical step at the moment, just to avoid... The, any tragedy, especially right. as we're heading into the winter. Indeed, and uh, also going full circle, uh, it would appear the Russians might be setting up just that kind of deal. So we're kind of back to where we started at, even even beyond <laughs> that. <laughs> no, well, no, the in in a practical sense, Afghanistan is much more in Moscow's backyard than the Washington's. Uh, perhaps even you know, in the yeah. com- looking back at the U- map of the USSR, it was more in Moscow's backyard than say Cuba is in uh, Washington's backyard. So um, you can understand that they have an interest and concern, especially with any uh, efforts to spread or fan the flames of Islamic militancy uh, within the borders of the former Soviet Union as well. Right. How did you feel when you uh, saw the? Uh American withdrawal. I'm presuming you watched on television like the rest of us. Uh, it was it was extremely tough to bear because in my analysis, mm-hmm. which is shared by some other experts I've been talking to in the defense analysis community here in the states, it didn't need to be like this. Um, it did not need to go down in this particular way, and you know the reasons for that are partly for the U.S to take responsibility for and, and partly for the Afghan government itself, uh, which I can get into. But the emotional reaction was was just appalling because you and I know that, you know, even if there's not a great deal of fighting, the, the chaos and the criminal activity that runs alongside any transition is just appalling for the people in those areas Indeed. where power is changing hands and scores are being settled and, um, you know, yeah. uh, in the way that... Um, People are brutalized in that way and robbed and, and so on. Right, and you're also seeing the rise of ISIS again and they're in Afghanistan and they make the Taliban look, uh, I was going to say a tad nicer, not the right words, but... The lesser of two evils? Yeah, um, perhaps. I mean, uh, I remember many years ago, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Chapon, who was a famous old French war correspondent, he always ranked the Khmer Rouge number one, Tamil Tigers number two, primarily because they just didn't care. The Taliban, however, uh-huh. were number three. And the reason why he didn't rank them higher was because that desire by the Taliban to get international recognition kind of kept them back a little bit from the atrocities that may have been committed had they cared less. And uh, right. then along came I- ISIS and they just don't care. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And then one of the big factors in the situation they're going forward is that all those centrifugal forces that make it hard for any uh, government in Afghanistan to effectively control the whole country, just starting with the geography and then the uh, mosaic-like structure of society mm-hmm. there, that where the local identities are often more important than the national identity, there are all those forces... Are, and, the, and then, of course, the poverty 
uh, are going to be working against any central government. And you're going to find, as the Taliban finds it hard to pay its foot soldiers, those guys are just going to be looking for a new boss. And uh, it's going to be easy for them to find either with ISIS or with any uh, personalities or factions that split off from the government for whatever personal or ideological re reason. So it's, um, it's going to be a challenging time ahead for sure. I think that's a very good point. When you look at the Americans spending, I think, $80 billion thereabouts on uh, rebuilding an Afghan army, the various warlords that have always been opposed to the Taliban, and they all simply uh, evaporated as they came marching into Kabul. And you know, the old line about uh, you can't own an Afghan, you can only rent one, and it was about <laughs> $30 a month, I think, back in the 1990s, and they do switch sides, and their loyalties can be acquired by by an opposing force because they have oh, because they have money, a uh, little loan more money, but they, uh, they can pay the bills. Exactly, and uh, I think I, 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 in my brief time in Afghanistan, it was very apparent that what really wins wars is um, there is pre this prestige and momentum. If it looks like you're winning, then you're going to win because loyalty, as you say, is malleable and people uh, who know they're going to be left there, you know, don't want to die. So if they can cut a deal while they can, uh, they will if they think it's going to help them you know, get through the next transition. So I think that was the big original sin from both the Trump and the Biden administrations was to destroy the prestige of the Kabul government and say, yeah, we don't think you got a prayer. They never said it in those words, but it certainly was the impression that everybody received. When you, 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 know, you probably saw the tweets from the, those Afghan colonels in the, in the early summer saying, we've been betrayed and abandoned. Why, yes, why, why should we... Why should we die for uh, for this kind of thing? You and know, it's not like they, they don't have the will to fight. I mean, they've been dying by the tens of thousands since they took the lead in the fight in 2014. Something like 66,000 uh, Afghan security personnel have been killed in, in the fighting up to then. So that's like 10,000, 12,000 a year from that tiny population. And that's a terrific sacrifice. And so it's kind of insulting to hear from the U.S. president that, uh, oh, they won't fight. Uh, no, they felt like they'd been abandoned. So what was the point? Um, you know, it's not, it's, it was pretty tough to watch that. Indeed, Shades of Saigon in 1975 has often been the uh, comparison. Uh, back to the book. What are your favourite stories yeah. from your own memoir? <laughs> well, um, it's easier to recall the kindness than the fear. Uh, in the subtitle, A Memoir of Fear and Kindness in Afghanistan. Um, it was pretty tough to write the fearful bits, uh, obviously, because I had to dredge up how it was felt to be in, in, in particularly tricky situations. Mm. Uh, but then I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the kindness of strangers. So that's an in incredible thing to grasp onto where, for example, uh, I'm not going to give away too much in the book by um, saying there was one night we were caught in literal no man's land mm. with um, shells and heavy machine guns firing overhead both directions and you know not not a pleasant place to be but we were taken in by this uh, farmer and his family and given shelter and food until it was safe to travel again and it wouldn't he wouldn't take any payment or anything of that nature of course when it was time to go because it was just the the nature of the people the nature of the culture and these individuals 
that obviously they're putting themselves at risk of retaliation because uh, sheltering foreigners could be perceived as a problem by either side. And it was just that kind of thing that, you know, warms the cockles of the heart to know that people can be, uh, even in a yep. country so brutalized by war, that most people retain their uh, humanity and compassion. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that I like to remember. And then, you know, try and obviously <laughs> forget all the bits where we were at risk. It's a difficult thing to write about. For those who've experienced wars, I think they kind of understand... Uh, that uncle who served in World War Two or Vietnam and sat in a corner and never spoke about it again. Right, exactly. And I, I like I said, as you know, my experience there was quite brief. Yeah. And so I like to say uh, and be humble. You know, I only had a taste of war, a taste of uh, fear, but it still took a long time to deal with it. And uh, so it just gives you uh, an impression for people who do come from those countries or who have served there or worked there, uh, how hard it can be to move on, as you say. Indeed. Uh, and you have moved on. You spent, uh, I guess, 30 years with the BBC up until 2020. Exactly. Um, so most of that, I did, <laughs> after getting the, the wit scared out of me, steer my career mostly toward uh, working with um, live news production mm -hmm. uh, for radio. And um, so, and then for 20 years or so with the U.S. public radio system uh, and working on an international news program. So kept my hand in on the international news circuit and put my experiences to good use. They put me in charge of correspondent safety. And so I made sure everyone that I sent out into the world had everything that I didn't, starting with training, first aid <laughs> kits, communications yeah. um, and uh, backup. It all came a bit. It all came, it all came a bit late. I was under the impression oh. that um, a lot of it only arrived once the insurance companies realised that uh, yeah, we could be in a permanent state of war for some time to come, and uh, if we're going to insure these media companies for the correspondence they have in the fields, they're going to have to uh, uh, buckle under and start shelling out for better training, better yep. equipment. Yep, uh, all that. that. And there was a couple of um, cock-ups in the 90s in the Balkans mm. from various international news organizations that unnecessary deaths. And uh, the, obviously the, um, lawyers noticed that as well. So there's another fear of um, legal you know, restitution right. uh, yeah, it, as what, well, which is unfortunate. But, you know, hopefully there was a moral awakening as well. I wasn't part of management at that time. But I'd like to one, think one so. One would hope. Yeah, one would hope. Uh, tell me about the history guy. Oh, so yes, for um, one of the, I did get into management for a while, as I was saying, but then the uh, mm. uh, situation changed in 2014 and, or 2013, and I just got, it was nicely maneuvered, I would say maneuvered out of management. They said, yeah, but you can get more time on air. So I took on this persona as the history guy for the US public radio program, right. The World, where I would basically uh, talk with the host and explain what the origins of a particular current issue were. For example, in that year, we started doing a lot of stuff on, for example, Crimea and Ukraine and the Russian interests in Sevastopol or something like that. So that was an interesting time. Uh, so that was the last seven years uh, on air talking about all these interesting things like uh, previous waves of immigration in the US and how they each wave had encountered hostility. Uh, obviously, the immigration was a hot button issue through most of the 2010s. 
if we can call them that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So it was a fun, it was a fun gig. Okay, and what next? You've got one book out. Uh, planning on any more? And would you go back to Afghanistan? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have um, a lot of interest. The, the book has sparked a lot of interest among uh, immigrants in the United States from the former Soviet Union. Um, some people have been brought to tears, I've been told, because it touches them very personally. Some of some of the, a lot of the families uh, of of my generation, mm. and. This was one guy in particular who's been saying, oh, I've got connections. We can get you back there. It'll be a great story. And I'm thinking, uh, no, nah. <laughs> I think I'm done. You've had enough. Uh, I, I had enough close shaves uh, without um, wanting to go back. But for so for me, I got six or seven projects cooking. The, yeah. the challenge is to pick one. And I also have a day job running a voiceover company uh, as well. So doing interesting Things like corporate training on cybersecurity, uh, the voices for films of that nature. So uh, it's keeping me busy and out of mischief. And that's not a bad thing. And while we're at it, what inspired you to write this book? Well, it's actually, it's funny you say that. My daughter asked me to write it down for posterity. I'm getting older. I hope she's not putting me in the grave just yet, but uh, before the memories start to fade... Um, so that was really useful to have her in mind as I was writing it because so many of these books that come out of uh, Afghanistan are inaccessible because, you know, the author's trying to impress academics and think tank people, whereas I just wanted to share my story. So I kept my daughter in mind. So the book's been written with the assumption that whoever picks it up knows nothing about Afghanistan or war or even journalism uh, so that everyone can come along. Uh, on the journey, hopefully, and uh, enjoy my stories and understand uh, just enough uh, to to know who's shooting at who around me. <laughs> Indeed. And on that note, Chris Wolf, author of uh, Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Luke.